you have a copy of God's Word, either in print, on your phone, or some other way, let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to welcome those who have joined us online. And let me encourage you, if you've joined us online, to comment. Let us know you're with us this morning. Now this morning we're going to be focusing on Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But before we do that, I want us to go back to chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus gives us the outline to the book of Revelation. If you want to know how Revelation is outlined, you look at Revelation 1, verse 19, and Jesus gives us the outline of the book. Listen to what he said. He said, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Jesus is telling John that the book of Revelation is divided up into three different sections. First are the things which you have seen. This is what we saw in chapter 1 where John captured the vision of the the revelation of the glory of Jesus. Jesus in all of his glory and he wrote that down. And then Jesus told him to write the things which are. This is what we read in chapters 2 and 3, the the letters to the churches and the church age. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But then he tells us to write the things which will take place after these things. In other words, the things that will take place after the church age. When we come to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, we see that John sees a door open up in heaven and he hears a voice telling him to come up and then that voice tells them that I will show you what will happen after this. That phrase after this in Revelation 4 verse 1 is the same Greek phrase that we see in Revelation 1 verse 19 which he tells us that he's going to show us what happens after these things. And so Revelation 4 verse 1 and following tells us what happens after the age of the churches. And so today as we look at these seven churches and we learn some truths from this, understand some of you may disagree with how I look at this passage of Scripture. And that's okay. But there's one truth that you need to hold on to that we cannot disagree on. And that is this. Jesus is Lord over his church And he is Lord over human history. Let me say that again. Jesus is Lord of his church. And he's Lord over human history. Regardless of what is happening in the church that we see with our eyes. And regardless of what is happening in the world. Jesus is on his throne. And he is orchestrating the events of human history to accomplish his perfect plan. His return and then his kingdom. And nothing can thwart God's plan. Now when we look at these seven churches, there are three different ways 
for us to look at these seven churches. And we're going to look at them all three different ways this morning. First of all, we see that these were letters given to seven particular churches that existed in John's day. Just as we have other letters in the Bible that Paul wrote to various churches or that Peter wrote or that John wrote, we see that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is giving letters to seven different churches. Now the first church is the church at Ephesus. We read about that church in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. And and this church was started by Paul. He, He lived two and a half years of his life in Ephesus. He planted this church. He loved this church. And this church, we are told, was doctrinally sound. They were a hard-working church. But Jesus had one problem with this church. In verse 4, he said, you have left your first love. This church was started by Paul. It was ministered to by some of the great Christians of the first century. Priscilla, Aquila ministered here. Apollos, the, the prince of preachers, ministered here. Timothy, who was mentored by Paul, ministered here. And yet, even though this church was filled with great leaders, they had left their first love. The fire that was burning in them hot when they first came to faith in Christ, when they first started serving Christ, was now burning up and was about to burn out. And so Jesus gives them a warning. Jesus says that if you do not repent, I will come, come." in verse 5 he says, and remove your lampstand. In other words, they would cease to be a light to their community, to their world. And that's what the church is called to be. We're called to be a city set on a hill. And if the light goes out and we're not able to be a city set on a hill, we have lost our reason for existence. So Jesus said losing your first love is a big deal. If you don't repent and restore, return to that first love, I'm gonna, you're going to lose your lampstand. That's the first church. The second church was Smyrna. We read about Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and this was the suffering church. They, they were a church that remained faithful in the midst of horrible persecution. And Jesus had no word of rebuke for this church. He only had a word of comfort and a word of encouragement. But what's important here is that Jesus never promised them deliverance from suffering. We have this idea today that if we're suffering, we can pray and Jesus is going to take the suffering away. But Jesus never promised to take the suffering away from this church. In in verse 10, it says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What Jesus is saying to this church is you faced a lot, but get ready, you're going to face a lot more. Some of you are even going to die, but remain faithful even in the midst of death. Now the third church was the church at Pergamon. And we read about that church in chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. And we're told that this church was in the city where Satan had his throne. In other words, Satan not only had a, a stronghold in this city, he had control of this city. This is where his throne was sitting during this day and this age. And anyone and everyone who, who stood against Satan faced Satan's wrath. And yet, 
in the midst of ministering in a city where Satan had his throne, we're told that this church remained faithful, even when Antipas was martyred. Now, tradition tells us that Antipas was the pastor of the church in Pergamum. And when the proconsul of, of the city of Pergamum commanded everyone to say Caesar is Lord, Antipas refused. And when he refused, they put Antipas in a brass bull. And they put the brass bull in a fire and they roasted him alive. That's the kind of thing that they were facing. And yet they were remaining faithful. And yet we're told that Pergamon was beginning to compromise some of the important teachings of Scripture. And they were unwilling to deal with this false teaching. Now, there weren't a lot of people that were, that were having these false teachings. There weren't a lot of people who were involved in the immoral lifestyle, but there were some. And they were unwilling to deal with it. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, but I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who, keep, who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, in this church, they were allowing members who held to do two dangerous teachings. The teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, remember Balaam? Balaam was this prophet who was hired by Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, wanted Balaam to put a curse on Israel. But he couldn't. Every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, he blessed Israel instead. He couldn't curse them. And so Balaam came up with a plan. He told Balak, the king of Moab, you can't curse them, but what you can do is you can corrupt them. And so they came up with this plan where the men of Israel were seduced by the beautiful Moabite women. And once they were seduced by these women, they began to worship their pagan gods. First, immorality, sexual sin, then idolatry. You see, we get involved in the wickedness of the world. And sooner or later, we'll find ourselves worshiping the gods of this world. And because of this sin, 24,000 Israelite men died. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was very similar. Tradition tells us that Nicholas was one of the early leaders of, of the church, but Nicholas adopted this belief that Christians were free to do anything they wanted to. There were no restraints. We call that antinomianism, no law. So the followers of Nicholas believed that they did not have to follow God's moral law. Irenaeus, who was one of the early church historians, said that the Nicolaitans lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. So the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans encouraged the believers to immorality and idolatry. And these sins were beginning to infect the church. There weren't a lot, but there were a few people who were infected by the sin and the church was doing nothing about it. Now the next church was... Thyatira. We read about them in chapter 2 verses 18 and 20 and even though they had some good things said about them we see the problems that began in Pergamum the compromise of idolatry and immorality had taken hold in the church in Thyatira. They were a corrupt church 
that had all but given in to the world. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. He said, you're permitting this, this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Now, Jezebel wasn't her real name. Jezebel is kind of like Judas or Benedict Arnold. It's a name that comes to represent something. And Jezebel is a woman in the Old Testament. She was the, the most evil, wicked woman in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon who married King Ahab, the king of Israel. And when she married Ahab, she brought with her her worship of Baal and all of her false prophets. And she led the nation of Israel into idolatry and immorality. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we are told that she tried to kill all of the true prophets of God. Elijah, who was a prophet, stood against 850 false prophets of Baal, put them to death. And yet when Jezebel came after him, he ran in terror. That's the kind of woman she was. And we are told that a woman like Jezebel had come into this church, they had influenced, she had influenced the church, and now she had a place of leadership in the church, and she was corrupting the church. And so this self-appointed prophet Jezebel had taken the place of the God-appointed prophet, and she was leading the church into immorality and idolatry. And God told them that if they did not repent, judgment was coming. The fifth church was the church at Sardis. And Jesus said to this church, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This church was one of the premier churches in Asia at the time. And yet their reputation didn't reveal their reality. Everyone that looked at this church thought they were a living, vibrant, great church. But Jesus said in reality, they were a dead church. But there was some good news even in this dead church. Jesus said in verse 8, there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. There were some who were staying true to the word of God who were alive in the midst of this dead church, I believe that God always has the remnant of his people. Now, the sixth church was the church at Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was a church that had great opportunities in spite of limited resources. Now, this is what Jesus said. He said, I know all the things you do, and, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Of all the churches, it's this church that was most committed to the Great Commission. And because of that, Jesus set before them an open door, and he said, no one can close the door that I have opened. And then the final church is the church at Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. This was a lukewarm church, a church that made Jesus sick. Listen to what he said. He said, I know all the things you do that you're neither hot nor cold. 
I wish that you were one or the other, but since you were like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, Laodicea, the city, had a water problem. They didn't have enough water for the people that lived in the city. But there were two cities on both sides that had a lot of water. Hyopolis had hot springs that had these hot healing waters, and, and Colossa had these cool springs that had refreshing water. And so Laodicea, Laodicea built these these pipes that would pipe in the water from Hyopolis and Colossa to Laodicea. But by the time the water got to them, the hot water from Hyopolis was no longer hot. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. And the cold water from Colossa was no longer cold. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. Now, I don't know about you, but I like coffee. I love hot coffee. When I fix me a pot of coffee in the morning, I pour that cup of coffee and I start drinking, sipping on that cup of coffee immediately. And I've come to enjoy iced coffee. I thought that was, you know, from devil at first. I thought, who, iced coffee. But, you know, I drink some iced coffee and iced coffee was, is really pretty good. But here's the thing. You can have hot coffee that if it sits and gets lukewarm, it's not good. And you can have iced coffee that if it sits and gets warm, it's not any good. You want iced coffee cold, you want hot coffee hot. And what Jesus is saying is you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm and you make me sick. The reality is this was the most disgusting and dangerous church there was. It was a church that was going through the motions, doing the deeds, but they didn't have real life. They were the kind of church that the Apostle Paul described as, as having a form of godliness, but they lack the real power that comes from God. Now, there's some good news to this church. Jesus hadn't given up on them, even though they were lukewarm. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. So Jesus is outside this church knocking wanting to come in he hadn't given up on them yet and so these were seven actual churches that were in Asia that were ministering to their communities that Jesus gave a message to but there's another way to look at these letters as well and we can look at these letters and see that these letters were given as message to all churches throughout the church age in other words in every church age we see churches that look like each of these seven churches. There are some churches today that, that struggle with the same problems. There are some churches today that have the same opportunities. There are some churches today that face the same obstacles as these churches. Now notice what Jesus said in, in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. He actually said this at the end of each of the letters that he wrote to the seven churches. He said, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches the church is plural. So he's given a letter to a church, but then at the end of that letter to the church, he says, you need to listen to what I'm saying to the churches. And so each of these letters was not only given specifically to one church, but they were given to every church because they had timeless truths in them. And so as we look at these seven churches, there are at least seven timeless truths that we need to grab a hold of as a church 
and as individuals. Here's the first one. Every church and every Christian must guard against losing our first love. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? I mean, if you're a Christian, you do. That's something you don't forget. It sticks with you. I'll never forget when I got saved. It changed my life. It's etched in my mind. And when I gave my life to Jesus, I fell in love with him. I mean, I wanted to live for him. I wanted to serve him. I wanted to follow him with all my heart. And that's just how it is. You experience the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And, and it changes everything. But it's easy to drift, isn't it? It's easy to lose our first love. What I've discovered is the longer we're Christians, the easier it is to step into a routine and begin to check the boxes. We're going through the motions. We're doing the right things. We still believe correctly. We're still doing those things we need to do. But we just don't love Jesus like we need to. And so what did Jesus say we need to do? He said, remember where you have fallen from. Repent. Do the deeds you did at first. We need to remember. We need to go back and remember when we first met Jesus. I would challenge you this afternoon when you go home, if you're a follower of Jesus, to just take a few moments and, and write down when you came to know Jesus. Remember it. Write down how you felt. Write down how your life was changed. Write down how he made a difference in your life. And then look at your life now and see if you're still in love with Jesus the way you were then. And then he said we need to repent. If you're not in love with Jesus like you were at first, that's sinning. You've backslidden. You've fallen away from the love that you once had. And you need to repent. And then you need to return and start doing the things you used to do. The things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. When, when I first got saved, I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to tell people about Jesus. I wanted to live a holy life. I mean, Jesus just changed everything about me. And I wanted to live for him. And we returned to those things we used to do. Second, every church and every Christian must recognize and be ready for suffering and persecution. The Bible makes it clear that suffering and persecution are a part of the Christian life. Now, you and I may not be facing it here in America today like there are some in other parts of the world today, but understand, in every age, in every generation, there have been Christians who have been persecuted for their faith. So how do we handle persecution victoriously? Well, Jesus tells us to not fear. Now, <laughs> that's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, the truth of the matter is there are none of us in this room, I don't believe, that have faced persecution. You say, oh, I've been persecuted as a believer. No, you haven't. Have you lost your job? Have you been thrown in prison? Have you been beaten? Have you faced death? That's persecution. And Jesus tells us that we can face that persecution moment without fear. Now, how in the world do we do that? There's only one way. And that is we take our eyes off of what is happening to us and we focus them on who we serve, Jesus, and the hope we have, eternal life. 
You see, I don't look at what I'm going through. I look at what I've got coming up. This world is not my home. God has something much greater prepared for me. And so understand, when we're going through the difficult times of life, don't look at what you're going through. Look at what you're going to get because of your faithfulness to Jesus. Here's another truth you need to understand here. God never promises to deliver us from the fire. He never does. But he promises to be with us in the midst of the fire. You may have to go through persecution, but he'll be with you. Here's the third thing. Every church and every Christian must maintain doctrinal and moral purity. The church at Pergamon had people who were a part of the church that embraced both lifestyles and teachings that would eventually destroy the church if not careful. The Apostle Paul said this, Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? You see, it only takes a little sin to corrupt the entire body. That's why it's so important for us to deal with sin in the body of Christ. Listen very carefully. When you become a part of the church, the church has a biblical obligation and responsibility to lovingly and redemptively correct you when you fall into sin and false teaching for your good and the good of the body. And if we are not willing to do that as a church body, we're no different than Pergamon. And Pergamon was in danger of becoming a church that was completely corrupted. Fourth, every church and every Christian must understand when we tolerate evil, we will eventually join with and be controlled by evil. You see, where you had only a few people in Pergamum who were involved in immorality and idolatry, in Thyatira, the majority of the people had bought into this false teaching from this Jezebel. As the church, we must be willing to confront false teachings and correct ourselves, or we're going to cease being the church, and we're going to be in danger of the judgment of God. Fifth, every church and every Christian must regularly evaluate their spiritual health to see if they are really alive. The reality is, our world is filled with dead churches, and our world is filled with dead Christians. Churches that, that look like the real deal, but they're dead. And there are churches that are filled with people who look like the real deal, but they're dead. Notice what Jesus told this church. He said, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, why, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I will come like a thief. Do you remember that phrase in the New Testament? Jesus tells us that when he comes again, he will come like a thief in the night. In other words, many of the people in the world will not be prepared when Jesus comes. Thieves, let me tell you, they don't come when you're prepared. Thieves don't come when you've got your alarm system on. They don't come when you're at home, when you've got people guarding your house. They look, they watch, they wait for that moment when you're least prepared. 
and that's when they come. And Jesus said to the people of Thyatira, if you're not careful and you don't change and you don't repent, when I come, I'm going to come like a thief in the night and you're not going to be ready for my coming. Sixth, he says every church and every Christian must take seriously the Great Commission. Jesus said this to this church. He said, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The number one priority of the church during the church age is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the tragedy of our day is many of us today are just no longer passionate about sharing the gospel. We say that Jesus is the only hope. We say we believe the gospel is the only way. But we're not sharing the gospel in the marketplace like we need to. And dear brothers and sisters, we need to be busy about sharing the gospel. And then finally, every church and every Christian must guard against drifting toward becoming lukewarm. Now this most often happens when we become self-sufficient. When a church is able to meet its needs, we become self-sufficient. And when we become self-sufficient, we're relying on our power rather than relying on God's power. And when that happens, we become lukewarm. And so these are seven letters to seven specific churches that, that were worshiping and ministering and seeking to make a difference in, in the first century. Second, these seven churches are representative of, of churches of every age and every day. And so there's a message we can learn from them. But there's a third way I want us to look at these seven churches this morning. And that is this. These letters were given to reveal seven periods of church history. From the birth of the church to the rapture. The Bible says that the church made its entrance into the world at Pentecost. Fifty days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead... The church was born. We read that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came, filled the believers. The church was born. But the Bible also makes it clear that there is coming a day when the church will exit the world. And I believe that is going to happen biblically with the rapture. And we're going to talk about that next week when we look at Revelation chapter 4, the first several verses in that chapter and some other verses. But so we see there is a time when the church entered the world and there is a time when the church exits the world. And I believe in these seven churches, God gives us a picture of that church age. And you say, Rocky, why do you believe that? Three reasons. One, the number seven. The number seven it is a number of completion in the Bible. It has significance. There are seven days in a week. When the children of Israel went to the city of Jericho, they marched around the city six times. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, blew their trumpets, their ram's horns seven times, and the walls of the city collapsed. Elisha told Naaman that he needed to go into the river and bathe himself seven times, and he would be healed. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, G Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And, and Peter said, seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times, seven times. When Jesus was on the cross, he made seven distinct sayings from the cross. We discover in the Bible that the 
period of the tribulation will last for seven years. We're told there will be seven seal judgments. There will be seven trumpet judgments. There will be seven bowl judgments until Jesus comes. And right here we're told that there are seven letters to seven churches. And so I believe that these seven churches are a picture of all of the church ages. But there's another reason I believe this. And that's because of what Jesus said at the end of the letter to each of these churches. Let me remind you what he said again. Revelation 2 verse 7. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now Jesus used that phrase when he was teaching here on this earth. Anyone with ears to hear, let him hear. And he used that phrase when he was speaking in parables, remember? And he was speaking parables that the world did not understand, but that he explained to those who followed him. And I believe that Jesus is using this terminology to let us know that there's more to this than just a message to a church. We need to look deeper and understand the hidden truth. And then there's a third reason I believe that this is a picture of the church age. And that is because of the seven specific churches that Jesus used. And the order in which he gave them. If you've ever studied church history, you will know if you look at church history and you read these seven letters that there's a correlation in what is happening. And so let me give you a little walk through church history. The church at Ephesus represents the apostolic age of the church. This is from the birth of the church to around 100 A.D., the age of the apostles. Now, why do I say that? This is the only church where the term apostle is used. Apostles are not mentioned in any of the other six letters. Now, why is that? I mean, because apostles were a big deal in this day and age. Well, the reason is because to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And so understand, there are people who call themselves apostles today. They're not. I mean, an apostello means sent out. And so there may be people who are sent out, but in the biblical sense of the word, there are no apostles today. There's no one on planet earth who has seen the resurrected Lord. There's no one who followed him during his earthly ministry who has met those qualifications. And so by the end of the first century, the apostles, those who saw Jesus, who ministered to Jesus, who experienced his resurrection, they had died off. So that's the first age of the church. The second age of the church is the period of Smyrna. And the Smyrna is the period of great persecution in the church. For 200 years, the church went through great persecution. Revelation 2 verse 10 talks about 10 days of persecution that this church would go through. Fox's book of martyrs talks about 10 great periods of persecution during this time in the church beginning with Nero, going to about 312 A.D. One church historian estimates that over 5 million Christians were put to death during this period. Now let that sink in. 5 million Christians. And remember, the population of the world was much smaller then than it is now. 
The persecution was immense during this time. They were fed to the lions. They were set on fire. They were torn apart by wild dogs. The things that these early believers went through were appalling. And yet this was a period of the church. Now this led to the age of Pergamon. And Pergamon represents the beginning of compromise in the church. Do you remember Balaam's philosophy and causing Israel to fall? If I can't curse them, I will corrupt them. And I believe that's what happened in this period of church history. Satan realized that the blood of the martyrs was only growing the church. And so instead of persecuting the church, Satan changed up his strategy and he corrupted the church. It was during this time that Constantine became the emperor of Rome. And when he won his great battle to become emperor, he saw this vision. It was a symbol of the cross, and, and he saw these words, by this sign conquer. And he won the battle, and he felt like that, that God was telling him that, that the cross was the way to go. So he legalized Christianity. That was great. But what seemed like a blessing became a curse. Because almost every church historian tells us that it was at this point that the church became married to the Roman Empire. And the church began looking more like Rome and less like the church. It was during this day that many of the pagan practices of the Roman religions began to make their way into the church. So they began to compromise. And then we get to Thyatira. And that represents the dark ages of the church you can just google dark ages and you can read about the dark ages and you can read about how the church was a part of those dark ages this was a time when the church was committing adultery with the world and this time period lasted almost a thousand years some people call this the devil's millennium it was a period of immense evil and filth and, and violence and uh, pagan historian Gibbon wrote the history of the church during this period is the annals of hell this is a time when then the authority when the authority of God's word was set aside and the authority of man was put on a pedestal what man said began to rule and then we see Sardis Sardis represents the church of the Reformation. This was the period when godly men like John Wycliffe and, and Martin Luther and Eurek Zingli and John Knox and John Calvin and others came on the scene. And, and all of a sudden, they began to move back to biblical truth. And remember the letter to the church at Sardis? It said, there are some in this church who have not soiled their garments with evil. This were the reformers. These were those people who, who, in spite of all the things that were going on, they turned back to the Word of God. Like Martin Luther, when he put his 95 theses on the door of the, the, the church at Wittenberg. And so we see this reformation, but the problem is it didn't go far enough. And then we see the church at Philadelphia, and this represents the, the missional revival church. I love what Harry Ironside, Ironside said about this church. He said, following the Reformation came a time when cold, lifeless formalism seemed to settle over all Protestant Christendom. But in the 18th and the 19th centuries, a great wave of blessing came over all those lands where the Reformation had gone. God began to work afresh in mighty power. 
It was during this time in the 18th and 19th century that we read about the great awakenings in America and in Europe. It was during this time that we see the great missionary movements where missionaries moved out to India and China and to Africa and began to share the gospel to places where they were no longer trying to reach those places. And God moved in a great and mighty way during those short two centuries. But that takes us to the final period, and that's Laodicea. And Laodicea represents the church of the last days. It's interesting to note that Jesus said nothing good about this church. And we notice that Jesus is not inside this church. He's outside this church, knocking on the door, saying, let me in. I mean, is this not a picture of the church in America and in Europe and in, in many places in the world today? A church where we're politically correct? A church where we tolerate any and every teaching and lifestyle? A church where we're unwilling to, to um, confront evil? A church where we're unwilling to stand on truth? A church where we have a form of godliness, but we really don't have any power? This really does describe the church of the day. When we read Laodicea, we discover they were a wealthy church. They had everything they needed. The church has more resources today than ever before in the history of the church. I mean, the church has more money. The church has more influence if we used it than we ever have. And yet the church is losing ground every day. Why? Because we're lukewarm. Warm, we're going through the motions with no real life. And Jesus is on the outside and he's knocking on the door saying, I'm coming, let me in. And I want to go back for just a minute to the church at Philadelphia because Jesus gave a promise to this church that you need to hear. In chapter 3, Verse 10, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, this missionary, revivalistic, evangelistic church, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, what is he talking about? What is Jesus saying that he's going to keep that missional, evangelistic, revival church from, that that?" That hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. There's only one thing he can be talking about. The tribulation. Uh, the time when the wrath of the Lamb comes upon the world. And I believe Jesus is saying that if we stand true, if we remain true to what God wants us to be, if we're like the church in Philadelphia, we're not going to have to worry about that. But if we're like the church at Laodicea, he's outside the door knocking. Saying, let me in before it's too late. When I was a teenager, we had a song that, that came out that we started singing. Some of you who are my age probably heard that song and sang it when you were in youth choir. It went like this. Life was filled with guns and wars and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men standing on a hill, one disappears, one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. You see, that day's coming. We call that the rapture. Jesus talked about it in the Gospels. 
We read about it in 1 Thessalonians. We read about it in Revelation, a day where there's a snatching away of the church, the people of God, and it's coming. And oh, dear friends, it's imminent. Jesus is coming soon. And we need to be ready. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? If you came right now, would you go? Would you be left behind? And are you sure? Your brothers and sisters, this is something you don't want to gamble on. You want to be sure. You don't want to play a game. You want to give your life to Jesus so that when he comes, he takes you to where he is so that you can be with him for all eternity. So if you're here and you don't know him, we want to give you the opportunity to give your life to him today. But there's a second thing I want to ask you to do. Because I know there are some of you, maybe many, maybe most of you in this room who already know Jesus. You know that when he calls, you're going. But I would ask you, are you sharing the gospel like you need to? Are you taking advantage of the opportunities that Jesus puts in your path every single day? Because every person you come in contact with, the waitress, the waiter at the restaurant, the person who checks you out at Target or Walmart, the person that takes your money at the gas station, the person you sit next to at work, every one of them are going to spend eternity somewhere. And you need to ask yourself, have I done what I can do to make sure they're with Jesus? Because, dear friend, we don't want anybody to miss heaven. So I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. And if you're here and you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven when you die, I want to encourage you right now to humble yourself before Almighty God. Repent of your sin. Trust Jesus to save you. Give him your life. You can pray this prayer right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning acknowledging that I'm a sinner. I haven't been living for you. I've been playing a game. I'm sorry. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe you rose from the grave to set me free. And today, I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your spirit. Take control of my life. Make me brand new. For however much time I have, Jesus, I want to serve you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.